I was, you know, raised to be like just a, you know, a decent human, like a non asshole. <laughs> and so. Okay. Okay. One, two, ready, go. Welcome to the Called to Be Bad podcast. My name is Mariah Martin, and I feel called to be bad. It turns out I'm not the only one. Join us as we dig into all things bad, scandalous, deviant, you know, the stuff that makes good church folks squirm in the sanctuary. Why? Well, because sometimes the scandalous is spiritual, deviant is divine, and bad is beautiful. Say yes to the call and let's see what holds. Hello, Aurelia. Hi. Welcome to Call to Be Bad. I love the name. <laughs> Thanks. I do too. Um, Did you mean for it to sound like Born to be Wild? That's, <laughs> you know, that's, how, that's I, what I hear every time I read it to myself. Yeah. So thankfully, like in the beginning, every time I said Call to be Bad, I'd be like, Call to be Bad. You know, I'd like say yeah. it to myself. Thankfully, I've got um, gotten kind of over that. <laughs> over that. I don't think about it as much. Anyways, well, welcome, uh, Aurelia. It's, it's lovely having you. Um, so this is Aurelia Davila Pratt. And um, she is the lead pastor of Peace of Christ Church, which is a radically loving community in Round Rock, Texas. Texas. I've actually never been to Texas. Wow. I'd have to come visit. It's not bad. There's, it's, it's big, and there's a lot of different places to go yeah. that are different from each other. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Well, if I come, I'll, I'll try to make my way to your... Absolutely. Your... This is... I'm in the Austin area, so it's... it's okay. The, capital. So you definitely have to come to Austin. That would be great. Um, Named by Sojourners as one of 10 Christian women shaping the church in 2022, which is awesome. Aurelia is also the author of A Brown Girl's Epiphany, Reclaim Your Intuition and Step Into Your Power. Um, So which I have here. It's really beautiful. Also, my nails like a little bit match, which is and Aurelia is also the co-host of the Nuance Tea podcast, which I will have to check out. I have not listened to. so. Um, and you can find her on Instagram, which is where I found her, um, at um, Rev Aurelia Joy, where she is reimagining faith and theology via spoken and written word. So today we're going to talk um, about her book in general, but more specifically about one of the chapters on politeness and manners. And I'm very excited to to dig into that. Uh, but before we get into all things manners, what are you drinking today? Oh yes, I'm. It's nothing special. I've got coffee, okay, <laughs> with soy creamer. I like to Ooh. avoid the, the dairy um, a little bit in this in this age that I'm at. <laughs> like I just can't handle it. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is my manifest that shit mug. <laughs> Oh, I love it. So whenever yes. I'm in a manifesting mood, I, I pour my coffee into this mug. Yeah. Are you manifesting anything in particular? Are you well, manifesting reason- the bad today? Like all things bad? It's funny because my co-host of of my podcast, Nuance Tea, um, she's mm-hmm. also a clergy, ordained clergy. Her name's Brittany. We actually, she's on our preaching team at my church as well. She gave me this mug when I was like hoping to get this book deal and I was like waiting Ooh. to hear back. Yeah. Um, and then like just maybe, yeah, like a few weeks later I heard back and um, 
it was a green light. So it reminds me of that season of, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to. To, it worked. It yeah, did. It worked. Manifesting <laughs> magic. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love that we po- both picked mugs that um, curse. Because <laughs> yeah, I was like, what is my least polite mug? Which is like mm. thinking about having a polite mug is hilarious. Right. Uh, but I, my mug says... <laughs> It says, you are pretty fucking awesome. Keep that shit up. And (laughs) it was given to me by, um, we have family friends. My um, spouse is half Dutch. And so he has family um, from the Netherlands. And uh, some of their family friends came in and visited. And they're fans of the podcast and know I love mugs. And so they gave me a a bad mug. So I love it. Love yeah. that one. Yeah, that was a, that was great. Great fitting for today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very, very um, bad manners, I guess. <laughs> Hello, beloved baddies. A quick break to tell you that this episode is sponsored by the Center for Art, Humor, and Soul, a nonprofit that supports and amplifies the voices of edgewalkers through art that catalyzes change, laughter that brings us together, and soul awakening to the creative spark within us. The support from the Center for Art, Humor, and Soul has meant the world to this podcast, so I highly encourage you to check out their website, arthumorandsoul.com, to see their other featured artists and projects. If you want to support the podcast, you can check out our Patreon or get in touch. Now I'll let you get back to this episode of Called to be Bad. Oh, yeah. So I we always start with definitions. Like, as you pointed out in your book, manners and politeness, they're so culturally bound um, and and based on context. So how, how do you define manners or politeness? And then we can get into, like, what bad manners are and what that looks like. Yeah. I mean, you know, I really mean... Uh, use these words quite literally when I speak Mm -hmm. about them in my Mm -hmm. um, chapter in this chapter of my book, which by the way, each of the chapters in the first half explore um, something like that we could possibly step out of as we step Mm -hmm. into healthier theology. So for this chapter, it's we're looking at politeness. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, the definition of politeness is behavior that is respectful and considerate of other people. And manners are are just really a way in which a thing is done or happens. So in this case, the way in which politeness is displayed um, or embodied. But I think that clause of other people, like behavior that's Mm. respectful, considerate of other people for politeness, that kind of implies that the rules are not necessarily objective, that they're set by somebody. Um, And so we have to keep that in mind when we're thinking of these definitions. So like for me, I grew up in the deep South, um, the Bible belt. And so politeness in my context and experience um, has been shaped and defined by a white Christian Southern hospitality sort of sensibility. Um, So that is where I am coming from and the, and the way I am engaging those concepts in this in this book yeah that that's helpful because I kind of have been using politeness and manners like in forming these questions and preparing for this conversation um I've been thinking of them as being used interchangeably but that's not necessarily the case that um manners are a way of performing politeness would that be a way to say it or did I mix it up Politeness kind of the way, way we display our, our, our politeness and, you know, yeah. <clears throat> Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah. So do you have um, any uh, examples? Uh, you have great examples in your book that you can share or any other examples of what um, good manners looked like. And then on the other hand, like what, what, what are bad manners? Yeah. Um, I mean, again, it depends on who you are and where you are. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's a huge problem. And I, the whole point of this conversation, um, that we don't keep that in mind, but let's just use women as an example. Mm-hmm. So good manners for a woman often looks like being compliant, not complaining, doing what you're told all while literally smiling, right? Like if we're not smiling, we're being rude or we're being (laughs) impolite. Um, Bad manners in this case looks like taking up space, like asking questions, literally like being too loud, too Mm -hmm. feisty, being too much, et cetera. Um, Now, okay, these are like, I want to, you know, acknowledge that there are shortcomings with this example because I'm using very like binary and rigid gender constructs here. But when we think of men, on the other hand, um, stereotypically, their definitions of good manners and bad manners are different for Mm -hmm. for men than they are for women. So are men considered rude or are they considered powerful and strong when they're not compliant? Um, Can men get away with anything from speeches to small talk to jokes and people not bat an eye, but if a woman uses the same kind of language or manners in their mm-hmm. speeches or small talk or jokes, all of a sudden, you know, it's a problem. Um, and so then, you know, we, we kind of go backwards and we look at kids like boys will be mm-hmm. boys. <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. a literal saying everyone knows. Um, but then girls need to be prim and proper and ladylike. Um, and then that goes travels with us into adulthood. So Good manners and bad manners, they kind of depend on the various intersections of our identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is like one of many reasons why people can't handle um, the concept of gender fluidity, because we're all expected to just get in line with our oh. gender roles. And yes. even as it relates to politeness and manners. And so gender fluidity shakes this up and it shakes up these systems and paradigms that, you know, we are all taught to exist within. Yeah, I've never thought about that as the shaking of the gender binary shakes up our general sense of politeness and like good society, societal behavior. Oh, that's fascinating. (laughs) I know. I kind of feel like, is there a book on this already? If someone knows, I hope they'll tell me or I need to look it up because it feels like there's going to be a whole book on this. (laughs) Gender and and politeness and and, and kind of crossing what happens when you play with that border. You're playing with, yeah, the kind of like the building blocks of polite society. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We could could write the paper together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I, um, one of your examples in your book was how when you were little and you were in class, uh, you would get in trouble because you would forget to say like, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir, in class. And, uh, it, it was considered impolite, but that was, you weren't trying to be impolite at all. That just wasn't what you were used to. Um, what, yeah. What was that? What was that like for you? I mean, it was just confusing because at home, 
I was given a set of, you know, kind of rules and norms, some spoken, some unspoken. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, raised to be like just a, you know, a decent human, like a non asshole. (laughs) And so (laughs) that it seems like it would be sufficient, you know, and then you go to school and I mean, all kids have to make this adjustment. They have to learn Mm -hmm. how to be in a structured environment and, you know, it's more rigid and more strict at school than it is at home. But to have these extra layers of cultural norms around politeness that, you know, were extremely considered extremely disrespectful. I don't know how it is in the North. Maybe you can tell me, but like my parents just did not teach or expect me to say yes, ma'am or no, ma'am. Um, but in the South, it is the epitome of um, like, rudeness and unacceptable if a kid just says yes or no it's like yes what no what (laughs) like you do not um and I still like cringe I I hate it um but yeah it was just I think it made me confused and probably embarrassed ashamed um Mm -hmm. and just sort of you know you want to do right you want to be a good kid and have adults be pleased with you and and so yeah, it didn't take long for me to learn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think we forget that, like, we have to teach kids. You know, if we expect things of kids, we have to teach it to them. And we don't, like, I think a lot of times, I mean, I'm not a parent, so I'm not I'm not trying to tell people how to parent. But I think <laughs> a lot of the times when kids get in trouble, it's like we're just, like, miscommunicating. Like, they're not, they're trying to do something different than what we actually think that they're doing. Um so, uh, one thing in your book you talk about, uh, which I had not heard this phrase before, but I, I, I think it's really getting at something. Um, you talk about white politeness and the connection between politeness and white supremacy. So what does that look like? And how does that, like your, your, your goal in your book is, is inviting us to live into our fullness. So how does, how does white politeness keep us from that, that goal of living into our fullness? Yeah. So, um, in my book, I tell a lot of my own personal stories. I do think that reflecting on our lives, our younger selves, and just our experiences can be very healing as we step into the fullness of our Imago Dei, our mm-hmm. you know, divine image. Um, and so for me, that looked like exploring some of my experiences as a brown woman, some of my racialized experiences. And uh, most of those experiences played out in the form of microaggressions. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a lot of um, privilege, you know, as well. It's, you know, in my identity and in my context. Um, I could name some of those. Educated, not, um, you know, financially stable. There's there's lots of privileges. Lighter skin for a brown woman. Mm -hmm. Um, But... I experienced, um, like all people of color do, a lot of microaggressions throughout my life and still do every day. Every day something um, can happen. But in childhood, it was just a lot more impactful. And also because of where I grew up in rural Louisiana, it just happened a lot more often. And so I wrote write this book because I want people to see that you know, the normalization and acceptance of microaggressions um, is really like more 
harmful in some ways, because while we can all agree that blatant racism is a problem, it's really hard to get people to engage in with the complicity when it comes to microaggressions. So what happens is that white supremacy uses politeness to sort of put a bow on racism and keep us all in line. So we can't call out the abuse it inflicts on people of color. Um, we're like in the book, I say our bruises are kept hidden, covered up by the rules of polite society. Because if we, if we share, you know, honest thoughts, if we share these microaggressions every time they happen, or if we share our rage, we're, we're, we're having bad manners. We're being impolite. We're disrupting the peace. Um, and so that is kind of what I, what I mean when I talk about the relationship between white supremacy and politeness, because whiteness in our culture, um, in our country, and, and as particularly in my context, has defined what it looks like to be polite, what it means to be polite. So, so that's why people of color are often having to code switch in white spaces, because um, the dominant culture has defined, you know, what's normal and what's acceptable. And oftentimes that's through the construct of politeness. Yeah. Uh, And that's so frustrating because when you name that, instead of focusing on the original hurt, the original harm, it's focusing more on like, uh, like how you brought it up or, um, how yes. you named the hurt, like um, kind of tone policing, mm-hmm. um, how the, you know, how you brought the bruise to light, if you will, rather than like, hey, I was bruised in the first place. Um, yeah. Or, you know, people will minimize it because it's not traumatic enough. People want, you know, they want really traumatic stories. They want trauma porn. They want, you know, to hear about these really deep, intense struggles, but they don't want to acknowledge how over the course of our lives, microaggressions add up and really, um, really tear down our spirits um, as people of color. So, and, you know, I write in the book, the minimization and acceptance of these everyday microaggressions ultimately leads to the disproportionate violence toward yeah. black and, and indigenous and, and um, brown people and, and bodies. So I think, you know, what, what are story examples of microaggression stories? Well, they're all throughout my book. That's pretty much what I talk about are these sort of like nuanced, complex mm-hmm. instances where I, and I know this is true for other people of color are one are going, what is this? was this racist? Am I crazy? Like, and it just happens so often and you're just made to feel like you're the one with the problem. Right. Yeah. And and I've heard like, um, yeah, I was told a story of, um, uh, a person of color who went out to eat, um, with, um, the, uh, uh, everyone else was white and he was served last. And so he was like, you know, like it, it took extra time for him to get his food. And so he was like, is this cause, is this cause I'm black? Like why, why is this happening? And, and I heard uh kind of pushback of like, Oh, it probably had nothing to do with, with race. You know, they're just like making a big thing out of nothing. And, and I was, I, I forget if I realized it or if someone pointed out 
it's not a matter of whether or not it actually was about race. It's the fact that he had to think about, oh, is this because I'm black? You know, like it, right. the, the white folks didn't <laughs> have to have to think about that. Yeah. Um, it's like that, it's that, that questioning. And you're talking about like, you almost like gaslight yourself or, yeah. or, or, um, or society kind of gaslights you into thinking like it's all in your head when it's not. Um, and like death by a thousand cuts of like constantly totally. dealing with that. Yes. And yeah, I've heard um, trauma described um, as, uh, and I'm forgetting who, it was something along the lines of anything that is too much, too soon, or too long, like any hardship. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think of, of, of microaggressions as too long. Yeah. Um, like it's just like, you know, it just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. And that's the thing is like, I love how you framed that in that story of the fact that he had to ask that question because people are so quick to get defensive and to say, like, it's not always about color or that's not what's happening here. But like, the point is that that it had happened to him so much that he has to move through life, you know, in this posture of protecting himself. Um, and I wish people had a little bit more compassion instead of jumping straight into a defensiveness for what, for, you know, a, a collective paradigm of white supremacy that no one benefits from, you know, it's not, we don't have mm-hmm. to do this so personally, um, we can be for each other, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> um, so in your book, you connect uh, politeness or good manners to scripture, to how we interpret scripture, which is just brilliant. Um, and you use the the fruit of the spirit. Yeah. And so what would it look like to reform politeness slash like how we are, how we um, connect politeness to scripture in a way that's deconstructed or, or decolonized? Yeah. Um, I actually was just going to read an excerpt for this. Yes, please. I, I feel like Give a little, a little my past teaser. I'll set it better, set it, set it well enough. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. But yeah. Okay. So I wrote, in the Bible Belt, where I've spent my entire life, the concept of politeness is often rooted in scripture, whether through the fruit of the spirit, the definition of love, or the concept of peacemaking. So with the politeness narrative, we're sent the message that love is conditional based on our performance and that peace means never rocking the boat. Patience means waiting for the other side of eternity to experience equity. Kindness means never speaking out of turn and always watching our tone and manners. Self-control means stifling every vulnerable or rage-filled emotion. Uh, Essentially, politeness becomes a surface-level biblical interpretation reducing our spirit work to little more than pious performance. But when these concepts are practiced with thoughtfulness and depth, our interactions with one another can be radically transformed. So love becomes a deep desire for our neighbor's liberation. Joy becomes delight in creation's thriving. Peace moves from passive to disruptive for the sake of justice. Patience becomes the stamina to bear witness to each other's pain. Kindness becomes our willingness to make way for what is true, no matter how uncomfortable. 
Generosity is a decisive shift from scarcity living to non-hierarchy embodied. Self-control becomes our willingness to set aside ego tendencies and make sacrifices for the sake of our collective healing. And I just like the last part here. I say I'm a big appreciator of politeness when it's not used as a placeholder for our actual work in the world. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> oh, that's so that's so good. <laughs> it's like the I'm such a Bible nerd that it just like I love my favorite part of um study and, and preaching and, and all of that is is looking at how um, our kind of traditional understandings and interpretation of scripture actually goes against the grain of what the text originally intended, of what the mm-hmm. original audience would have heard. And so finding where that that's kind of flipped is one of my favorite parts of Bible study. And I think this is like a beautiful example of how we have taken the fruit of the Spirit and kind of um, diluted them yes. to something that yeah. just like is performative, something that just fits into polite society. Like the, the, like I always use the like purple cross emoji and say like mm-hmm. the good that the good Christians do. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a facade. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not genuine. And, and, and I don't think that that's like something we're trying to do. It's just something that we've yeah been taught of like, this is what it means to be a good Christian or a good member of society. Totally. Mm. So I come from the I come from the Anabaptist Mennonite tradition, which is considered a peace church. Mm-hmm. And we I think I think I can speak for we as Mennonites, um, but <laughs> in general, uh have struggled with, you know, like we'll be very clear, like peace is not pacifism is not passiveism as far as being passive. Yes. But I think we have um, stepped into this place of keeping the peace at the expense of um, actually fighting for justice because yeah. fighting for justice can look like conflict and conflict mm-hmm. can look like, you know, troubling the waters can look like violence and we are not violent. And um, so it's keeping the peace uh, at what expense. Mm-hmm. Um so would you have any any words of of wisdom for this this peace tradition? I just loved loved how you said um peace is is not wait, how'd you say it is not is not rocking the boat or peace is rocking how did you say it peace is rocking the boat? Well, yeah, I think I said peace is moving from passive to disruptive for the sake yes. of justice. Um, yeah, I wrote a sermon like several years ago called disruptive peace, where I like Mm -hmm. really go into what I mean by that, because I know, you know, this is like a a center point of your tradition, but I can really relate, you know, just being Mm -hmm. in the Christian tradition on, um, peace really being used, um, or I would say misused, for the sake of remaining in the status quo. Now, not to say that that's what the intention of your tradition was at all, but that's just sort of what happens is people, Mm -hmm. you know, we keep the peace and maybe we need to share the peace instead of keeping it all the time. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's, um, that's disruptive inherently to, to share the peace in a world full of systems designed to hoard it, um, for a select few. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, thank you for that. So in, in your book, you talk about uh, the sacred pause, which is a way that you kind of push back against this uh, drive, this pull to act out of general politeness and keep the status quo versus like actually acting out of integrity. Um, so what is that sacred pause? And, and do you have any stories or examples of what that looks like? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think it's good to know um, just a foundational like concept behind that is that I start the book by talking about stepping out of autopilot. That's the first chapter is step out of autopilot. It's sort of the foundation and starting point of my book, but also I think of of this kind of work if you know mm-hmm. we're not in it already. Um, and it's just the idea that we need to be questioning and rethinking and doing a lot of unlearning so that we can step into healthier theologies, healthier faith paradigms and versions of God, you know, images of God in our, in our psyches. Um, so the sacred pause that I talk about in this chapter where I essentially, you know, I had gotten an email saying, telling me that something I did was rude. And like, of course it's important to be thoughtful and to think through, um, and be mindful of others, But in this instance, it was a situation where it was a cultural thing. And I Mm -hmm. kind of knew that in my gut, but an older version of me would have just apologized for, you know, being too much and moving on. Um, So I described the sacred pause as this moment where I'm like, wait, let me me pause a minute. Um, Maybe, maybe just an apology is not in this case, like the right way to respond. Maybe there's something more thoughtful here. Um, And so the sacred pause is about giving ourselves time in any situation or instance to just get grounded Mm -hmm. in our Imago Dei and the truth of who we are, pausing before minimizing ourselves, pausing before accepting status quo ideas around God and our own image, um, pausing before you know, allowing ourselves to respond and act out of these places that limit or squelch the fullness of our Mago day. And I mean, gosh, it it is hard work because we do have egos. We do have scenarios where we do need to own up and apologize. Um, But we also know, especially, and from speaking for myself as like a Brown woman that, you know, I have apologized too much at times and I have, um, I have kind of, like disregarded myself and my own voice and not trusted myself because of this. Um, and so it is really, you know, complicated work, but I just think it's really important that we move into these kind of like gray spaces, even within ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You talk about the um, non-dualistic thinking about how yeah. it's not automatically mm-hmm. like, Oh, I, I'm being rude or, you know, like there, there's more going on more going on there. Um, so, so would it be accurate to say that part of having bad manners or stepping into your integrity, stepping into your fullness is, uh, taking a moment to resist apologizing for, um, when you didn't actually do harm, when it would just be easier, it would smooth over the social situation just to apologize and move on. But, but when that's not actually the case, like that kind of resistance is, is 
more, yeah, it just carries more integrity. You know, it, using apology, apologizing as an example is like probably the hardest example possible because mm-hmm. I do think that we are living in a time where um, we're learning a lot and society mm-hmm. is evolving and there's a lot more public dialogue with the spaces of social media that we have. And with that, um, people on the margins are speaking up and out and they're calling people in when, you know, when harm is being caused. And so I, I tread lightly when I, when I talk about, um, apologizing, but hopefully people that are hearing this conversation in, in its fullness will kind of be able to put that in its proper context of like what it means, you know, to be, um, a person on the margins in any way who has had to just apologize for existing in so many of their um, actions and ways of being. So that's more what I mean, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, just a sacred pause, you know, we don't have to um, react right away. And I think that goes for any instance of anything going on in our lives. We can be people who respond out of our Imago day instead of reacting based on chaos or other people's opinions or, you know, whatever, whatever thing is not, you know, rooting us in our fullness. Yeah. Yeah. I'm picturing like a situation where, um, someone runs into you, like you're walking and they, and someone bumps into you and your automatic, uh, response is saying, sorry, even though they're the ones that bumped into you, that feels like a different space of like, then you're like apologizing for taking up space and like no reason to apologize versus like actually being called out for, uh, real harm and saying like, well, I didn't mean it, you know, like that, those feel like different bad manners to me, if that makes sense. Yes, totally. Totally. Yeah. I ask everyone that comes on the podcast uh, this question. Uh, So what would you do, Aurelia, um, if someone said that you were a bad, whatever identity kind of hits home for you, pastor, Mm -hmm. um, Christian, uh, you're a mom, right? Yeah. (laughs) Bad mom or, or, you know, whatever for the ways you are poking at – good manners or politeness? What would you say if someone said that to you? Well, what would I do or what would I say? (laughs) Oh, good distinction. Here's what I would do and what I would say. Um, because like, I don't, my response is like, I would do the hard, but urgent work that I keep talking about, which is grounding Mm -hmm. myself in the truth of Imago Dei, what that means for my own existence Um, So what I would say to myself is remember who you are. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a retiring people pleaser (laughs) um, who's still, you know, trying to achieve retirement, um, I, you know, don't take the weightiness of that lightly of what it feels like for somebody to misunderstand you. Um, um, So, you know, the work of remembering the divine truth about myself is, I think the most powerful thing I can do, whether I am in the act of, you know, um, doing hard things, learning hard truths, apologizing, or whether I'm, you know, you know, in an empowered space of speaking truth or whatever, mm-hmm. the work remains the same in all of it, which is to remember who I am and embody that. 
Yeah, I love that, that, that story in your book that, um, it, it's your grandma, right? That says, remember who you are. Um, yeah, that, that's beautiful. And so that's kind of like a, a, a phrase, a grounding phrase. Yeah. Do you have any other, I didn't prompt you on this, but do you have any other grounding practices that, that pull you in when you're in these spaces? Yeah. I mean, I'm really big on mantras and, mm-hmm. and embodiment. I mean, that those are kind of, <laughs> I don't know what the, what those words elicit in people. But so mm-hmm. what I mean though, is that I think that um, phrases, mantras that are meaningful to people can really like help move you into an embodied practice of those phrases. Mm-hmm. I talk, I do share some other mantras in the book. I, I love um, the mantra begin again, whether like mm-hmm. just self-compassion, you know, just patiently start over. It's okay. <laughs> you know, whether that's in your spiritual practices or you're trying something new or, or whatever, like begin again is one of my favorite um, mantras that really grounds me. Um, and then just embodied practices. Um, I have mm-hmm. a garden, I compost and, um, like just being like physically reminded that I'm a part of the earth and part of creation always helps, um, put things into perspective for me. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, and this often happens on the podcast. We talk, we start with, um, you know, like a, a bad thing, like politeness. But then once you start um, picking away at that, you realize like how many layers and all of a sudden we're at like identity, like who you are mm-hmm. uh, and who you are in God's eyes, you know. And so it's like it's not just about um, embodying bad manners to push against the man, well, uh, although it does include that. But it's also like, how do you return to who you are in authentic ways. So that's, that's neat. Well, do you have any final thoughts or advice for someone's trying to unlearn their understanding of, of manners or politeness? Yeah. And I say this in, in my book, but it's not that I don't value like basic manners. I have a six year old (laughs) and I use the word manners a lot. (laughs) It's not that it's not, you know, either or, um, this topic is a matter of authenticity and depth, you know, um, are we living into our fullness? You, another way to say that is, are we living into our most authentic selves? Um, and is our, our politeness and the ways that we display, um, you know, who we are to others, is it motivated by unhealthy constructs of goodness and worthiness? Is it motivated Mm by piety? Um, I think a more authentic posture would be politeness that is concerned with liberation and healing, both ours and the collective, you know, ours and our neighbors. Um, And so it really is, as we do this work, just a matter of, are you really being authentic and honest with your existence? Um, It's not real, really that impactful that were, you know, saying please and thank you all the time. I mean, can that be helpful? Sure. (laughs) But like, let's go deeper, you know? Oh, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, and also a bit of advice, go out, go out and buy Aurelia's book because it's, it's beautiful inside and out. (laughs) Um, yeah. So would it be okay, uh, Aurelia, if I bless you and all of our baddies viewing and listening? Yeah. Yeah. 
um, Aurelia and all of you baddies out there, may you um, go from this episode stepping into your authentic authenticity and integrity and the knowledge that you are made in the image of God, that you are made beautiful and whole, and you don't have to uh, use politeness or manners as a mask for for who you are. You can strip that away and, um, yeah, walk, walk in your integrity. Mm. Amen. Beautiful. Amen. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode of Called to be Bad. Keep being your bad, beautiful selves, and I will see you next time.